Today I'm going to have Dr. Stacy Hunter with us. So, Dr. Stacy Hunter, thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Dr. Hunter received her PhD in clinical exercise physiology from the University of Texas at Austin, where she studied the effects of yoga on vascular function in the cardiovascular aging research laboratory. Nowadays, she's an assistant professor at Texas State University, and, sh and she's also the director of the cardiovascular physiology lab in the Department of Health and Human Performance. And she continues her investigation in the role of yoga in acute and chronic effects in on vascular health. Dr. Hunter describes herself as a scientist with a professional background in lifestyle interventions, clinical trials, freelance writing, and personal training. She runs the Yoga and All Things Fitness, a really interesting blog in which she, she says she likes taking technical information and making it easy to understand for the for the people that are not into science. So that like that thing that you like to do it's going to be really handy today. <laughs> How oh you doing? Good. How you feeling? I'm good. I'm feeling good. Um, just left a fundraising event for breast cancer. How did it go? It went well. I mean, they had a very good turnout. The luncheon was good. They had testimonials from women who had been served um, by the foundation. So yeah, it was it was good. That's awesome. So, Dr. Hunter, I'm gonna I'm gonna go right into the interview questions. You you recently led a study that it was published last year in Complementary Therapies in Medicine, in which you determined the acute effects of Vinyasa Yoga session on arterial stiffness, wave reflection, lipid and glucose concentrations. And besides the physiological responses, you also look at the effect of mood. And what I was really interested in of this article is that you use um, a scale, the, the P-A-N-A-S scale right. to, to, to assess mood. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it's the PANIS scale. Um, it's very commonly used to assess uh, changes in mood. And, you know, most of my work is physiology, obviously. That's my background. Um, but, I, I mean, mood and, and other mental health aspects also um, influence our physiology. So we decided to look at that um, just to try to gauge the person's state of mind, um, right after they practiced a session of vinyasa yoga. Um, and for those who are unfamiliar with the, what vinyasa is, sometimes studios also call it power yoga. Um, it's a very, I'd say in terms of like 
scales of intensity in the yoga realm, it's one of the more intense practice styles um, in which the movement is very continuous and you're flowing from one posture to the next. So if you did a panas analysis to yourself right now, what would you say? Are you in a good mood? <laughs> um, I think I think my positive affect would be pretty high, I think. Okay, good. That's good to hear. We could do one before and one after the interview and see. <laughs> Yeah, but that was uh, that study was actually done as a master's thesis by one of my former students, um, Alexander Pina. Something that caught my attention was that you consider a short intervention of yoga eight weeks of practice. And I think this may shock a lot of people that expect to show up to a yoga session and the next week be immediately flexible. Eight weeks is a short intervention? Yeah. Um, eight weeks is a short intervention. Uh, 12 weeks is also relatively short considering the pursuit of health or the maintenance of health um, for some is really a lifelong practice. And so just considering the general lifespan on average is somewhere around 79 years or so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, eight weeks is a pretty short time. But, so. but for those that do expect magic results, this study has sort of good news, right? Because the central findings of this study were that after only one hour of vinyasa yoga session, there are significant reductions in arterial stiffness, in the cholesterol levels, and in the negative mood. So yeah, immediately afterwards, yeah. How come this is so immediate? Um, so... And I'm speculating here. So just basing this upon um, what I know about physical exercise, other exercise modes, um, like running, swimming, those sorts of things. Um, aerobic exercise increases metabolism. So you tend to increase your metabolism of fats and, and other things as well. I think that might um, be a part of the reason why we saw that reduction in the lipid levels or, or in the cholesterol. And then mood in terms of just improving your general state of mind. I, I We weren't surprised by that finding. I, others have found similar things as well after one session of yoga and, at, and even after a session of exercise, after a long run, even people feel <laughs> um, like yeah, they're the, in the a The famous better. endorphins, right? Yeah, yeah. Dr. Hunter, how do you measure arterial stiffness? So you can measure it in a few different ways. Um, so we actually looked at two measures in that study. We looked at what's called carotid ephemeral pulse wave velocity, and that's actually the gold standard um, in which you place these pressure sensors on top of the person's neck and also on their upper thigh. So uh, right along their carotid artery and, and their femoral arteries as well. And we essentially measure um, the, the time delay and the initiations of those two pulses because there is a slight time delay between your neck pulse and also the pulse in your leg. So essentially the faster the pulse wave travels throughout the body, the stiffer the arteries. So we measured it that way, but then we also looked at something that is indicative of arterial stiffness, not necessarily a measure of it, and it's called augmentation index. And that is somewhat of a simpler measure in which we 
measure pressure waves of the radial or the wrist artery to see how high that is. And that's, that's indicative of the arterial stiffness. And it, it wasn't the pulse wave velocity that changed. <laughs> that would have been nice. It was actually the um, augmentation index that went down after the practice. But still, I mean, after one hour of, of session, yeah, these are really impressive results, right? Yeah, and maybe they were still dilated. You know, their vessels potentially might have been more... Um, Because during exercise, it's quite normal for there to be some dilation of the blood vessels, and particularly the blood vessels that are supplying blood flow to the muscles that are being exerted during the activity. So that's a normal exercise-induced response. And so what we might have been looking at by measuring augmentation index right after the yoga session is simply just some like sustained <laughs> effects of, of the exercise on, on the vasculature around the, the vessels. Dr. Hunter, sorry, for people that are not used to reading scientific, scientific articles, below the yeah. abstract, so there's the title, there's the abstract, and there's a section okay. that highlights articles keywords. And in this study, one of the keywords was alternative exercise. Yeah. And this leads me to ask you, why, why is yoga considered an alternative exercise? And, and, and maybe a little bit further, if you like that it is considered an alternative exercise. Yeah, I mean, for me, <laughs> because it is my main exercise mode, it's not alternative, but in terms of um, people's familiarity with it, its popularity, uh, what people even know about it, yeah, it is considered alternative. And quite frankly, even some leading, you know, exercise authorities, organizations don't recognize it as an exercise mode at all. <laughs> so do you think, do you think it would help if it was not considered alternative, if we just consider exercise? I do. Yeah. Because it is a form of exercise, you know? Um, and so I think you'd sort of have to maybe potentially redefine how, like what exercise is. And perhaps I don't like, I'm not one of the people <laughs> who um, who doesn't consider it an exercise modality, so I don't exactly know what's in their heads. Um, I certainly practice it myself. My heart rate is elevated, um, and I, we've done studies. Even I've I've been involved in a study, and and have also looked at other literature that have shown that metabolic rate is significantly increased during the practice, similar to that if you were um, briskly walking on a treadmill and the heart rate response is similar to that if you were actually running. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Dr. Hunter, you earlier mentioned that vinyasa yoga is the one that is the hardest, one of the hardest ones, right? I Yeah, I would say it's the highest in intensi intensity in terms of the caloric expenditure, how many calories you're burning per minute, yes, vinyasa is the highest. But you also have a review that you basically say that there's a lot of different methods to measure intensity in different types of yoga, and you kind of right. call for a collaboration between all the researchers and try to come up with one common way to measure them? Because in the review, you found out that there's a lot of variation in how different researchers, they measure different intensity. Yeah, right? so the you can measure exercise intensity a few different ways. Um, some people choose to only rely on heart rate, and then other people choose to rely on um, 
metabolic cost or oxygen consumption measured. Um, you actually have to hook the person up to a gas analysis system to do that whole thing. So it's definitely more expensive um, and people are just less tend to be less equipped to do that. So I'd say more often than not, people tend to rely on heart rate to predict caloric expenditure. The problem is there is this what's called a linear relationship between heart rate and calories burned. However, um, when that that typically only applies uh, more so to aerobic or endurance types of exercise. So when you try to apply that to resistance training or yoga, anything that's isometric in nature, and what I mean by isometric, meaning the muscles contracting and you're holding, but you're not shortening or lengthening Mm -hmm. the muscle. So a plank exercise. The the famous and hated plank, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's still a relationship between heart rate and calories burned during yoga. However, the heart rate response for a a given um, caloric expenditure tends to be higher for yoga. So if you simply rely on the heart rate to predict (laughs) your calories burned during more of an isometric type of a workout, you will overestimate. Dr. Hunter, In your study that was published in 2019 in the International Journal of Exercise, there's a clear result on the effect of yoga on on blood viscosity and hematocrit. Both are variables that are linked with cardiovascular disease uh, risk, right? right? And, And basically the result is super clear that consistent yoga practice was associated with lower blood viscosity. In comparison, right. in comparison to sedentary people. My question is, what, what would happen if you compare it to active people? I think that it could potentially be equally effective, but I'm not exactly sure. What, um, why did you choose to compare it to sedentary people? Um, that's a good question. So that, um, that data set, so I had a master's student at Texas State um, And I actually, the data that I I gave him, the data to analyze, it was data that I I collected during my dissertation at UT. So that was actually data from the very first study I did as a doctoral student in which we were trying to find out primarily in addition to viscosity and hematocrit, if yoga practitioners would have lower arterial stiffness compared to sedentary individuals. Um, at the time, I didn't really have reason to believe um, that yoga would somehow be superior to aerobic or endurance exercise training. So I think I just decided um, on that two group method and just compare the yoga practitioner to someone who is in fact sedentary to see if there's an effect there at all. Dr. Hunter, before we get into the whole hot versus normal temperature yoga uh, studies that you that you did that that they got they cost a lot of impact and all that i think we'd leave that for the next um after the, after the break okay. um you you work a lot with with subjects right you recruit a lot of sub your studies basically consist of people doing yoga and you measure different things on them right yeah yeah how is how is that process of recruiting people to to your studies <sighs> 
Oh, man. It, I mean, it depends on the study. So sometimes recruitment is a lot easier than other times. It depends on what I'm looking for. Sometimes we need sedentary people to come in. And I have found that, like, we've not had too many issues, like, recruiting sedentary people who just want to try yoga. But some of our studies have more strict criteria. Uh, for instance, they have to be within a certain age range, or they have to be a certain BMI, body mass index, um, or they have to be a certain race, even. So it just it depends on the number of criteria that we're trying to, um, you know... Do you pay the subjects to participate? Sometimes. Most, I would say, uh, most of my recent studies, we've paid them something. The first studies I did, we had practically no funding and we didn't really pay them anything. I've done a couple of studies where I actually even had the participants pay for their own yoga classes up front. Um, and we incentivized them to finish say the eight or 12 week intervention by offering them full reimbursement if they completed it, say at least 80% of the classes over the eight or 12 week period. And do you have a good or a low dropout rate? No, I mean, look, <laughs> it's on average, you know, someone just published a review, <clears throat> excuse me, within the last couple of years, and they found the average dropout rate for yoga interventions was somewhere around 15 to 20%. Um, and my studies are right around there. I The highest dropout rate that I have seen was 50%. I lost half of the participants who signed up for the very first intervention I'd ever done. Um, and that was when I was a doctoral student. And we just had them doing these beginner Hatha yoga classes twice a week for 12 weeks. I lost half of the people. <laughs> they, what, I don't what know happened? if they didn't what, like it. Or, was it too hard or what? No, it wasn't. Nobody said it was too hard. It was just like some of them were lost to follow up. Like, you know, they would just stop going to the classes. And then I would try to reach out to them and, you know, couldn't get a hold of them. Um, other people, things in their lives came up. It just, that was the, that was the worst. Your, your, <laughs> your first rate. one. What's that? On your first one, you had the worst drop yes. rate. Oh yeah. That was, that was the worst for That's sure. That's so unlucky. <laughs> it's gotten better. <laughs> That's good. Dr. Hunter, I'm, we, can, we need to do a little break, sorry. But we'll be right back with more science stories. Science stories. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright, blessed day, the dark, sacred night. And I think to myself. What a wonderful world 
They say I'm crazy The way you got me open, baby Ooh. They say I'm bugging The way I'm time-sweating your loving Ooh. They all sit and wonder why This feeling I cannot hide all right, we're back. Before the um, the break, I played Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world, beautiful song. And now we're listening to Jill Scott, It's Love. Uh-huh. Why, why did you pick this song? <laughs> well, I love both of them. Um, those are the songs that I listen to at home. Um, I love the message of the Louis Armstrong song and the It's Love, Jill Scott is just good for the soul. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Hunter, so from January 2017 to October 2018, you published three studies comparing the effects of hot versus room temperature Bikram yoga in several variables. And these were, a, you generated a big splash uh, in the scientific community, but outside of the scientific community as well. The first study aimed to, to determine if Bikram yoga would improve endothelium function in young and middle-aged and older healthy adults. And the subjects had to complete three, three times a week Bikram yeah. yogas for eight weeks, right? Right. What, what did you find out in this study? So it was a three-group randomized uh, control trial design in adults between the ages of 40 and 60. Um, because that that period of life represents a time in which the risk of cardiovascular disease tends to increase and also um, with vascular function, however uh, that is measured, arterial stiffness or what's called endothelial function, um, those things start to decline. And so we had one group um, do nothing for the 12 weeks. And then we had uh, one group practice the, the Bikram Yoga 26 posture sequence at room temperature. And then we had another group practice it in the traditional hot yoga environment, which is 105 degrees, 40 to 60% relative humidity. And basically, we found that vascular function or vascular health improved in both the hot yoga as well as the room temperature yoga group. And uh, there really was no difference between the two. As a matter of fact, um, I think in the room temperature group, the p-value was, it breached statistical significance. If I'm remembering correctly, in the hot yoga group, it was very close <laughs> to being significant. But so basically what this means is that it's the yoga, not the temperature, what is exactly. generating the effects. Yeah. And I was, I mean... When you study things like endothelial function, uh, like it's not typical jargon, <laughs> but in and outside of, I'll say, the science communities, I think if if the study findings are on blood pressure, cholesterol, things that I think people um, are more probably familiar with or at least have heard of, I would have expected the attention that it got. I, I was actually <laughs> I was surprised. Um, that it got so much attention just because of the focus, you know, on endothelial function, the fact that a lot of people um, don't really know what that is. But I think 
because it was, you know, a study comparing heated yoga versus non-heated yoga. And there are so many hot yoga practitioners and like loyalists even, you know, to the practice. Yeah, lots of um, lots of people picked it up. And, and report. I mean, it was on TV and radio and magazines picked it up. Like. I mean, you, you got featured in Forbes, in Time, in Refinery29 and, and many other magazines. Yeah. Did, you, did you feel famous for a little bit or what? <laughs> no, <laughs> I did not feel famous. I, the, the study itself was famous. I don't know that um, people even read the name of the author, but um, no, it was... You know, that's one of the things that, you know, I think a lot of researchers hope is that their work can be impactful, you know, um, and impactful, meaning not just informing future studies by their colleagues, but also like that the data that they collect can be leveraged, you know, to benefit people outside <laughs> of, of, of the labs, right? Yeah, of um, course. People and just live in their lives. Yeah, right? I, I imagine the scientific community, I mean, applauded these results. I mean, pretty much they didn't care. It's just another good article, a good paper. <laughs> But for people in the outside, in the or yoga practitioners or yoga or people that practice yoga, was this well received or not necessarily? I think so. I think that it was well received by people for different reasons. I, um, one of the articles, I think it was the Today Show blog or something, um, where the heading was like, if you hate hot yoga, this study's for you. Um, so people who detest hot yoga were loving it, <laughs> it seems, <laughs> um, just from some of the things that I read. But But yeah, I think there are some people who are also um, not <laughs> loving the results so much because they felt like I, you know, it sort of um, undermined their the practice that they love and, and do on a regular basis. So did, did they reach out to you? Did they? I remember one email from um, a person who was uh, pretty offended <laughs> by pretty offended by the results and, and what the results suggested that the heat was not necessary because I mean people are pretty strong in their beliefs that the heat is an integral component to the practice like in that you're practically doing nothing at all unless it's 105 degrees which is not true and I think you know introducing um, these data that were not in agreement with something that they had been told and just like conditioned to believe likely for years. It was, it was met with resistance. I'll say that. So yeah, I got, um, <laughs> I, I got an angry email from a gentleman that I can recall. I might've gotten another one too. I just can't remember. I kind of blocked things like that out. And all this because you just, you didn't, you never said anything against the hot practice. You just said no. you get the same results. No whether it's heated or room temperature. Yeah. And still people backlashed a little bit. Yeah, I mean, a little bit. <laughs> Because, I mean, adding the heat makes the practice incredibly difficult, right? I mean, 
it's a very different story, like practicing those 26 postures at 73 degrees versus like trying to do it in essentially sauna-like conditions. Um, so people do feel like they're working harder and they do feel like they're doing more. And so for you to publish a study that suggests that, no, you're really not, um, I can understand why some people didn't receive it well. But no, I've never said anything against hot yoga. I, I love hot yoga. I'm a practitioner myself, and I've been practicing hot yoga for probably, I think, what, four, 14 years this year. So I still practice, even after that. Dr. Hunter, in this first study, you, you used like uh, adults that, are, that were young, middle-aged, and older. And in the following two studies that also compared hot versus room temperature yoga, you just focused on middle-aged adults. Right. Why, yeah. why, why did you focus on that particular age group? So I focused on that age group because that first study where we looked at young and middle-aged adults, the endothelial function, which is essentially a measure of how much the arteries dilate in response to an increase in blood flow. And that is indicative of the future risk of high blood pressure and also heart disease. That only improved in the 40 to 60 year old group. And so that's why the follow-up study is in that age group. Makes total sense, of course. Yeah. So in 2016, you also did a study that you investigate the impact of Bikram yoga on arterial stiffness and quality of life in normal and overweight or obese yes. adults. Yeah. And I looked into, I actually took the test myself. I looked into the RAND36 item short form survey that you used to assess the quality of life. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't know the results. I took the test, but I, I, it didn't give me a result like if my life quality is good or not. Oh really? Yeah, because there's you have so you to. you found it online. I found it online, but I think that you uh, have. The, it's pretty complicated. How do you score the results as well, right? Yes. How do you score yeah. But I I really liked that it also includes physical, but also mental health aspects. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. W would you add anything else to to that survey? That do you think there's something that is missing or? Gee, I'd have to go back and think about. So social functioning, vitality. I think it's a really good instrument. I'd, I'd have to go back and look at it to see if, if I might add anything. I'm sure it could stand to be improved, <laughs> like, like most things. Dr. Hunter, you recently got an R21 NIH grant, and I have to congratulate you because this is really hard. Can you, can you, can you tell? <laughs> Thank you people outside the community, what, what that means? First of all, what is an R21? What is NIH? And um, the National Institutes of Health. Um, and it's a very competitive grant process. And they have different grant mechanisms. They have lots of different mechanisms. Um, and some of the mechanisms are more competitive than others. Um, but an R21 is a two-year grant that they actually consider to be, even though the total grant was, it's over 400,000, it's, it's a small grant. Um, so, so that's what an R21 is. It's two years of funding. Um, it's 275,000 in direct costs. And you, 
they have three deadlines per year. Um, oftentimes people don't get it the first <laughs> on the first attempt. And so I, I'll say it took me three years, three years of submitting applications and, and um, before finally, one was finally successful. And it's really good that the NIH is interested in the effects of yoga, right? Yes, yes. And, I was very encouraged by that, yeah. This, they have been. this particular grant, you you want to to investigate, or or the title of the grant the, of the grant is yoga postures and slow deep breathing in altering mechanistic outcomes in hypertension. So you're gonna study right. the effects of yoga in hypertension, right? Yes, exactly. So we're looking not just at people with hypertension, but even those on the verge of it. So people with like slightly elevated blood pressure are also eligible to participate. So this study also is being conducted in individuals between the ages of 40 and 60 years old. And their systolic blood pressure, which is the higher number of the two, has to be at least 120. And then the diastolic blood pressure can either be normal or like up to 89 is essentially where we're stopping it at. And so um, we're going to have them, we're going to, it's a three group design as well. And so there's a control group and then there is a yoga posture group that's going to practice a traditional Bikram yoga 26 posture with breathing exercises uh, at the beginning and end. And then um, the other group is just going to practice yogic breathing alone at home uh, several times a week, and that'll be 12 weeks as well. So those, everybody's going to get to do one of the two conditions. So even if, even the people who are assigned to the control group are going to be re-randomized at the end of the 12 weeks. So, so just want to say that to anyone listening <laughs> right now, because I know sometimes, um, And I've certainly learned this from doing what are called proof of concept studies in which maybe you don't have a control group. Those do tend to be easier to recruit for <laughs> than because people, course, nobody yeah. wants to be in the control group, right? Mm -hmm. When they hear mm -hmm. that, they're like, oh, no, I don't want to take that chance. But just know um, with this study, everybody's going to get to do the yoga. What do you expect from this study? So we're looking at immune cells are actually going to be isolating white blood cells because the immune system doesn't just um, fight infection. It also plays a role in different disease states. And hypertension is, is one of those conditions that the immune system uh, facilitates, unfortunately. And so we're actually going to isolate immune cells and look at free radicals within those immune cells. And in addition to the free radicals themselves, we're going to look at enzyme activity in those cells as well to see if that declines in addition to their blood pressure and also their vascular health. Dr. Hunter, we need to do another short break. Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. Like a friend, 
So before the break, we were listening to Sure Thing from, Mi from Miguel, and now we're listening to The Cranberries, the song Dreams. Why, why did you pick those songs? Because I like them. <laughs> <laughs> I like Miguel, um, and I like, uh, I love The Cranberries. I've, like, I've been listening to them since high school, so yeah. Dr. Hunter, I really like your blog. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about articles that you publish in your in your blog that they are really really interesting. Can you can you mention it again so people can go and check it out? Um yogaandallthingsfitness.com. First of all, the aesthetics of the blog is beautiful. It looks really nice when you open. it's a really nice website. And then the articles yeah. that are the articles that are there are super interesting. And for example, there is one that you talk about the benefits of shavasana pose. Did I pronounce it correctly? Mm-hmm. Okay, can you tell what the pose is? Um, shavasana is lying, uh, what's called supine, on your back um, with the legs slightly parted and the arms down by the sides with the palms up. So, so basically when when you lay still in the ground at the end of, yeah. the, of the yoga yeah, session... Yeah, you're, you're and, lying down. And you yeah. relax... What I really like about your article is that you highlight the benefits of the mental aspect over the physical ones, since the physical recovery is the same as with other poses. Yeah, and I I, I wrote that in part because oftentimes I've, I've been in yoga classes in which I have heard yoga instructors, they encourage people to not skip the Shavasana. But one of the things that I have heard over the years of, of practice is that you have to do your Shavasana in order for your body to recover, in order for your heart rate to come down faster and that sort of a thing. And um, that's not, um, it's not exactly true. So the heart rate recovers no matter what position um, you are in. As, as soon as your muscles stop contracting um, immediately, the nervous system sort of starts to undergo adjustments. And the rate of recovery uh, probably depends less so on position of the body, uh, but more so on other physiological factors. Um, so, so you like more the mental aspect of it? Yeah, yeah, I think. And then, yeah, by no means it, it was that blog suggesting that there's no benefit <laughs> or that people... No, again, like with the hot yeah, or temperature. It's just, yeah. Yeah, it's just that the reason to practice it shouldn't be that whole faster recovery of, of the heart rate. It, it really, I think that the benefits of Shavasana um, might likely be more so the mental benefits. Do, do you see it as, a, as an exercise of patience, for example? I do. 
I mean, I see it and have experienced it myself as an exercise of patience. Oftentimes, I'm ready to leave <laughs> at the end of class, right? Like toward the end of a yoga session, like for me, sometimes I'm already thinking about what I want to have for dinner. I mean, I use that example in the blog. I was talking about myself and I'm thinking about what I have to do when I leave there. But just like to exercise that discipline of delaying that, <laughs> you know, the gratification of like doing the next thing for a few minutes and forcing yourself to lie there. And it's even harder when you're in a hot yoga class because you're ready to get out of the heat. <laughs> So your blog, as I said, your blog is really interesting and you have a really nice article in which you discuss whether it is the yoga or the yoga breathing that contributes right. to the health benefits. So, so what is the correct way to say yoga breathing? The pran uh, pranayama? Pranayama, there you go. Or pranayama, yeah, I mean, yoga breathing is, is fine too, but yeah. And I would like to ask you if if we could take it to a next level and and by this... For example, in any drug test, some patients get the placebo instead of the drug, mm -hmm. right? To control the effect of the patient's belief on the treatment. How would you design a placebo for yoga? Is it, is it even possible? Um, I, think it, I think that there are ways of doing it. And one of the ways that we sort of tried to assess a placebo effect was in the last study that we did um, where we had participants come in and practice yogic breathing using an app called the breathing app after they had ingested a high fat meal. And the reason why we use the high fat meal is because high fat meals, among other things, cause vascular dysfunction, meaning the art, they cause the arteries to constrict, um, but they can also um, increase free radical production as well. So we were interested in looking at the effects of slow yogic breathing on free radical production during that acute stressor. And so in order to look at the placebo effect, we essentially, the app can be set at multiple different breath frequencies. And so a normal resting respiration rate is around 12 to 20 breaths per minute. And so you can set the app at 12 breaths per minute, which is a normal <laughs> breathing rate. And so just have the person hold the device in front of them and follow it. There are sounds and there's a ball <laughs> that you follow that expands. And I, I actually didn't even tell them what the study, what the purpose of the study was, other than we're interested in the effect of different breathing patterns on what happens Um, after you've ingested a meal. I didn't tell them that one of the breathing patterns would be slow and the other would be faster. So yeah, I just gave them the device, randomized the order, and both times they thought that they were practicing. Do you remember if there was a placebo effect? I am just finishing up the data analysis for that trial. One of the things that we saw was that um, endothelial function, or which is, again, a measure of vasodilation, like that did not change in either breathing condition after they consumed the meal. So I'm actually wondering if that might have been a placebo effect, like maybe just the fact that they thought they were doing something mm -hmm. like helped to prevent that vasoconstriction from occurring. That is possible. Um, but one, an another thing we saw was that um, 
what's called superoxide dismutase, which is an antioxidant, but it gets released when free radicals are produced. And that tended to be lower when they did the slow breathing. So, um, so I'm in the process of trying to explain that. <laughs> What do you use as a high fat meal? For this study, we had them consume vanilla milkshakes with Breyer's ice cream that I made for each that's, and every participant. That's high fat indeed. Yes, we added heavy cream and all sorts of good stuff, yeah. Do you think, do you, think you can control the mental aspect of doing yoga as well? Like the placebo effect in your, in your mind of doing yoga, like using virtual reality, for example, where you have patients sitting down in a room, they are still, but in their minds, they're practicing yoga. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that would be a good experimental design at all? I think that would be very cool. <laughs> like I do. I think that would be very interesting to see. That. Should we write an NIH grant? <laughs> Maybe. No, I'd be very interested in seeing that. There's definitely data on um, exercise that shows that even before people start exercising, just knowing that you're about to, thinking about it even causes the heart rate to go up. And so, yeah, that's, it's called central command, that whole, this whole physiological concept in which like prior to the stimulus, the body starts to respond. And so I'd be curious to know, yeah what the data on yoga looked like for that. Dr. Hunter, you also talk about personal stuff in your blog. And you mentioned that people sometimes without even trying yoga, they as, uh, associate yoga with paganism and Hinduism and like pagan riddle, rituals, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you mind if I ask you what, what happened? Because you, you read a, a whole article about that. Um, yeah, I've, I've had encounters with um, people who have never tried yoga and yet have like seemingly these well-defined views um, on what goes on inside of yoga studios, like that you must be um, engaged in, in pagan rituals, um, you know, saluting different gods that you're engaged in activities that are antithetical to other faiths. And so I have encountered, I also, I have encountered that from, um, from Christians, which I am as well. I, I am a Christian myself, but I have encountered that from other Christians. And I, I've been in spaces in which I've even um, not been comfortable talking about what it is I do <laughs> for a living because of the reactions that I have gotten hmm. from people, because they do think that, somehow it is um, opposing Christianity, which I don't, um, I don't agree with, so. Yeah, actually, you, you mentioned that as a cause for not many black people engaging in yoga, right? It's, it's been a cited reason, yeah, um, <laughs> why, um, why some black people, or why the practice is, can be somewhat prohibitive. Um, to black people, because I mean, a lot of black people are conservative and uh, in particular, it, depending on the region, even I, I'm from South Carolina and I can speak more so like about that community. Lots of black people in that area are Christian or have Christian um, roots or, you know, and so 
the idea of engaging in a practice that is antithetical to their core beliefs can be off-putting. But you also, uh, you also say that the numbers are increasing, though. Yes, yes. And so the numbers of people practicing yoga have increased just in general, uh, but particularly, yes, um, the number of Black people who have engaged in the practice has also increased over the last several years as well. Yeah. Dr. Hunter, is yoga still a hobby for you? <laughs> um, so I, yoga is something that I practice, something I enjoy. I don't, I don't typically even use the word hobby. So <laughs> when people ask about my hobbies, I just have to think about, okay, like you're just asking about something I like doing. Um, but it is an integral part of my life. Yeah. I practice on a regular basis and even among my other loves, travel being one of those things. I love going to see different places when I travel. That's one of the first things I'm doing is looking up where the yoga studios are, you know, because I love it. I love practicing in, in different areas and I've even had the pleasure of, of practicing in other parts of the world, even other countries and taking the class in other languages. So, so yes. That's super interesting. Dr. Hunter, did you have a good time? I did. <laughs> yes, thanks for having me. Can you, can you repeat again the name of your blog so that people can, can go and visit it, please? It is Yoga and All Things Fitness, and I can be reached um, via the blog as well if you just uh, send me an email there. Thank you so much for, for participating in Science Stories. It was really, really interesting listening about your research. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Science Stories. Wow.